Lord, thank you for this season. Uh, thank you for the truth that we uh, have just sung and we have read about. Uh, and whether this is one of our first Christmases as a new believer or whether we've been doing this for decades, uh, that these truths would impact us once again. And, and we confess that sometimes that means we need you to work in our heart in a significant way. Uh, so would you do that now as we read, as we think about these things once again? Uh, do not allow us to be bored or calloused to these truths, uh, as familiar as they might be. Um, melt a cold heart that may need your grace, uh, that we might once again marvel and thank you and glorify you for these things that we celebrate. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'd like you to turn with me in your Bible to that dusty section, to that crispy section of your Bibles known as the Minor Prophets, uh, to Micah, the book of Micah. Uh, if you don't know where that is, that's okay. My name's Keith. I'll be your tour guide this morning. Uh, just turn to the middle of your Bible. You should get somewhere near the Psalms. Just turn to the right a few pages. Uh, you'll get into the prophets, uh, the big guys, the big boys, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you'll hit a little book called Hosea. That begins the first of the 12 smaller prophets that we call the minor prophets. Just wander through there and uh, you'll find the book of Micah after that familiar book of Jonah. Uh, why do we need to talk about Micah, because every year, here's what we do. We, we do a special ops mission into the minor prophets. We jump out of a perfectly good airplane into the book of Micah, these little prophets. We read a verse, and then we get out as quickly as possible and talk about the New Testament. And that's unfortunate, because reading one verse from Micah or any of the other Old Testament prophets, even if it relates to Christmas, is a bit like walking into a movie theater an hour into the show. You have no idea what's going on. You're, you're, and maybe you've done that. You ever done that? You go to somebody, they sit down and they start asking all these questions. You know, who's that? What's that? What's going on here? You don't like that when that happens in the movie theater. And so we certainly don't want to do that with the truths of Christmas. Uh, Micah, every, every year we read, and maybe you do this in your family too, Micah 5.2. So look at that verse with me, Micah 5.2. Here's what we read. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and after decades of saying that, can you all say Ephrathah? That, that's hard to do, Ephrathah. That's the old word for Judah. And if you notice, when we read it in Matthew, Matthew translates it into the modern language. It's not Bethlehem Ephrathah, it's Bethlehem, the Bethlehem that's in the nation of Judah. Uh, Too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you one will go forth from me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And we say, great. But look at verse 1. Muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They have laid siege among us with a rod. They will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. And we go, what on earth is that all about? I thought this was about a baby born in a manger. So what I want to do this morning is, by God's grace, to give you a crash course on the book of Micah. Because we need to understand what is this book about. Some of you, of course, uh, went through uh, Don Dietrich's Minor Prophets study years ago, so you've got a, you've got a leg up on the rest of us. But um, what is the book of Micah all about? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And at the risk of being a bit non-traditional, I want to show you this. You got it, uh, Weldon? 
Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel, or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now, these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people. And he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now, these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. 
Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depth of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. Let's pray. Okay, that's from the Bible Project. They have videos on all the books in the Bible, and I'd encourage you. It's a great way to get the big picture of a book, and especially something like this that can be overwhelming because of the poetry and the political and historical situations. So, but I hope that I, he did in six and a half minutes what that would take me all day to do. So hopefully that was a good use of our time. Okay, we'll grab that sermon outline now that you have the flyover of the book of Micah. And... Um, you understand what this book is about, right? This is that time in Israel's history that God had called them to be a light for him, to, to declare his glory, to declare his law, and to call people everywhere to know and follow God. But it is not gone, as you heard, it's not gone very well. In fact, we're at the point when Micah shows up on the scene that God's nation is actually divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And both kingdoms continue in their rebellion and in their idolatry. Now, Micah, as you heard in the video, is focusing his prophecy on the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah. In fact, shortly into Micah's ministry, um, the northern kingdom is actually going to go into captivity and ta be taken away by the Assyrians. 
Um, interestingly enough, Micah also ministered at the same time as Hosea, who was up in the north uh, talking to uh, Israel and Isaiah, and Isaiah, who was in the south in Jerusalem talking to the nation of Judah. But when you remember Micah, I want you to remember Micah as the good old boy prophet. Okay, Micah was the good old boy prophet because he was not a city boy. He was not from the city. He was from the country. And uh, so he comes in here from this land called Moresheth that we learn there in chapter 1, verse 1, 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And he comes, he, he leaves his hometown, comes into the city to prophesy, as you heard, because of the corruption and continued rebellion of the people against the Lord. So what's the purpose all about? Because of this corruption and continued sin, God would judge and discipline his people by bringing them into captivity through an enemy nation. Uh, But as we heard in the video, yet he promised to send a future king who would bring both peace and personal forgiveness one day to all who would turn back to him. So that, that's the book in a nutshell. So now picture this, because we, we have to kind of put our, our 8th century B.C. sandals on to try to understand how this works, okay? I want you to imagine that um, we live in an area... Let, let, let's, let's do this here. Let's get your geography here, okay? Let's say DFW Airport on the north, Mansfield on the south, uh, Benbrook on the west, and uh, downtown Dallas on the east. Okay, you got it? Airport, Mansfield, downtown Dallas, Benbrook. Okay, you got that region? That's how big Judah is. Not even spanning the whole metroplex. So Judah is this tiny little spot, okay? Now, surrounding Judah is the Assyrian Empire. You say, how big is the Assyrian Empire? The rest of Texas and New Mexico and Oklahoma and Arkansas... And Louisiana. Okay, you got it? That's the Assyrian Empire. They are the rest of Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico surrounding this little dot called Judah, which doesn't even make up the metroplex. Okay? That's the scenario as we come to Micah. And Assyria is threatening to take over that one little dot that they don't own yet. And you can imagine how the kings of Judah that are mentioned there at the beginning of the book... Uh, Hezekiah and Ahaz, that, that they are tempted to take matters into their own hands. I mean, wouldn't you? W- would it be hard for you to trust your God when that's the threat around you and, and, and these guys are, are mulling over their enemies in a way that makes Hitler's blitzkrieg look like, you know, a toddler play? Uh, this is really, really a challenging time. And the leaders are panicking, the people are panicking. And that is the context with which Micah writes. The second thing I want you to see, now that we've kind of understood some of the context of the book between the video and that introduction, uh, is what we might call the condemnation of God upon people. We need to consider the condemnation of God upon people. As you heard, this book is about judgment and hope. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And we say, well, what, what actually is going on? So look in Micah chapter 1. Let me show you the judgment of God as it's coming. In chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, look at this. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. Watch this. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. God is coming down. Whatever you're doing is so bad that God has to come down the, the celestial staircase of heaven 
to come talk to you about it. This is not a good thing. Now, when God shows up, look at verse 4. The mountains melt under him. The valleys are split like wax under the fire, like water poured down a steep place. God is coming down from his uh, throne to bring judgment and destruction. We say, why on earth is he doing that? Look at verse 5. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. It is the sin and rebellion and corruption of his people that brings God down to this place of judgment. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that Samaria will be a heap of ruins in the open country. Isaiah or Micah started his ministry in about 750. In 722, God brings the Assyrians in. They, they destroy the northern kingdom of Assyria, the capital city of Samaria, and they become a heap, just as Micah foretold. And all those people are taken back into Assyria as slaves. Look down at verse 15. In chapter 1, verse 15, it says the Israelites will be taken away into captivity as slaves as well. And flip over to chapter 4, verse 10. Flip over there. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city and you will dwell in the field and go to Babylon. So you have a prophecy that... that Assyria is going to take the northern kingdom away into captivity. And right here in chapter 4, verse 10, now Babylon's going to come in and take the southern kingdom, Judah. Both of these kingdoms are going to end up destroyed and taken off to be the captors of their enemy nations around them. Now, there has never been a time in history, other than maybe the flood, that God has so threatened His people like this. This is condemnation of a most significant degree. And as we consider the condemnation of God's people, that that these are millions of people that God loves, that God has promised, that God has entrusted the, the, the covenants and the promises and the law, and He says, no more, I'm done. And so the natural question is, what on earth did they do? I mean, Micah tells us, yeah, they were sinning. Yeah, we get that. But what is the high-handed transgressions of the people that God would wipe out his most precious people. Okay? So let's let's think about that now, okay? We need to contemplate the corruption of human hearts. What what brings this all about? God is going to condemn his people to take them into exile. What did they do? Let me show you what the people were guilty of, okay? Uh keep your keep your Bible handy there. Look at chapter 1 verse 7. We'll pick it up right where we left off. Chapter 1 verse 7. All of her idols will be smashed. These were people uh, entrenched in the false worship of all of the nations around them. Remember, Assyria is all around them. They're a polytheistic nation. They don't care a lick about Yahweh or the scriptures or anything like that. They're into their own pagan religion. And you can imagine how tempting it must have been for them to pay a little bit of homage to the Assyrian gods in hopes that maybe Assyria would leave us alone, right? You can understand that. And so they did. They bought into that. And, and you remember the, the, the kings and the chronicles, uh, the books in the Old Testament recount how most of the kings in the northern kingdom, most of the kings in the southern kingdom were wicked kings. They not only allowed the false worship of, of other gods, they promoted it. They built temples. They built high places. They put statues of these gods in the special places of the kingdom of Israel. And it is that false worship that is the, the main heart problem 
that God is bringing His judgment about. That, that, that's what's causing this judgment and this condemnation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Micah tells us that they plot and scheme to do iniquity. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. They covet the possessions of others. They steal and rob their fellow men. See, see look at this. When you are worshiping the wrong things and the wrong God, what happens to your behavior? It follows, doesn't it? When you are not worshiping God alone, when you are not worshiping the the God of Scripture alone, and, and you begin to ascribe to other things in your life, other gods, other priorities, a place that only God should occupy in your life, what happens to your life? It follows. It becomes corrupt. And that's what was going on. These are, these are, um, Israelites that, that are God's people, and yet they're, they're coveting possessions. They're stealing from one another. They're robbing their fellow man. Look down at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. They're taking advantage of women and children. And look at what it says here. And veterans. Look at, look at verse, um, uh, 8. Recently my people have arisen, and, uh, as an enemy that you strip off, uh, you strip the robe off the garment from the unsuspecting passers-by from who? From those returning from war. They are literally taking the garments of the veterans coming back from fighting in all of these wars that are going on with the Assyrian nation. They're taking advantage, verse 9, of women and children. Uh, Flip over to chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. You saw the little animation a moment ago. Chapter 6, verse 10 says they were engaged in dishonest commerce. They were using deceptive weights, wicked scales, right? They were tipping the scales in their favor so that they could extort more money from the people uh, that they were selling their goods to. Uh, Look at verse 12 of chapter 6. They were engaged in violence, the text tells us, lies and deceit. But you know, that's not, that's not the worst of what's going on here. That's what's going on in the people. But the worst of what God is bringing His judgment over is it's not just the people that is corrupt, it's the leadership, even the religious leaders. Look back at chapter 3. Look back at chapter 3 and look at verse 3. It says, the rulers of the house of Jacob. These are the leadership, uh, the governing officials, the religious officials of the nation of Judah. What are they doing? Verse 3 says they're violating justice by abusing people. Uh, the, the picture here is graphic, so, so hang on to your hats here. Who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in the kettle. Uh, uh, Micah pulls out this, this horrible language to describe the level of abuse and taking advantage of the people that was going on, not just by the the people, but by the leaders. Look down at verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. They said these leaders abhor justice. They twist everything that is straight. Verse 11, they pronounce judgment for a bribe. You saw that in the animation, right? They, they, They would render, let's say you've got a court case, right? And so you would go to the nation, to the to the judges, and you would say, hey, this is going on in my life. And what would happen? If you would bribe them they would render a favorable verdict, right? But if you didn't have the money to pay, well, guess what? You were probably going to jail. You probably have to pay a fine. Uh, it makes me think years ago, um, my first trip to Russia when I was teaching out there at the seminary, and we were driving in one morning to the school from the place where I was staying, and all of a sudden, you know, lights come on, sirens come on, and we get pulled over on the way in driving in there. And, and I'm in the back seat. I'm, I'm just the dumb American. I don't know 
anything that's going on because they're just yapping back and forth in Russian. It's, it's our driver who's a professor there and also the, uh, the, the missionary that I was staying with, American missionary. Both of them are fluent. So they're yapping back and forth with this guy in Russian. And blah, 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 blah. I mean, and this is like five, six, seven, ten minutes. And, and I'm just sitting in the back. I have no idea what's going on. And, and finally, you know, they let us go. And I, I turned to my friend and I said, what was that all about? And he said um, he was asking for money. In fact, he was demanding money because what they do is they randomly pull people over and if you pay them money, uh, they, won't, they won't write you a ticket. They won't send you to jail. They, they won't make you pay a fine if you, if you bribe them a little bit. And, and the back and forth, and that's a big problem with Christians in Russia is that that's just how you do society. And you know, if you've lived in a foreign country, you think it's corrupt here? <laughs> if you've lived in a foreign country, you know that that level of corruption and bribery is normal. It's a normal way of life. And that's what's going on in the nation of Israel. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Even the prophets, it says here, the religious leaders lead my people astray. This is crazy. They were actually doing ministry for bribery. If you paid money, the prophets would pronounce a good uh, a blessing from God on your life, right? If you didn't have money to pay, they would pronounce a curse on your life. And that, that's the level of corruption going on here. Chapter 3, verse 11. The priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. And chapter 3, verse 2 kind of puts a, puts a bow on all of this. What's the bottom line? Chapter 3, verse 2. You who hate good and love evil. That's what's going on. The, these people that are called by God to be His people, a light to the Gentiles, a blessing to the nations, have turned His law on His head. They are calling good evil and evil good. And yet, verse 11 says, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in our place? Uh, Well, there's a verse in the Bible in Titus that describes this, right? They profess to know God, but what? But by their deeds they deny Him. That's what's going on in the nation of Judah. I wonder what would happen if we could teleport the prophets of old to 2019 United States of America. I mean, if if I had an app on my phone and I could just type it in and boop, there's Micah. And he comes in and he sits down in the worship service. He watches a little Fox News this afternoon, right? He's watching his, his Twitter feed. What would the prophets of old think of our society, of our world, of our nation, of our church even. Washington is a mess of corruption, isn't it? Our government is a train wreck of corruption. We're thankful for those few men and women that lead with integrity and and honesty. And we know there are a few. But for the most part, they are corrupt. Our universities and schools are things where all things ungodly are promoted in the name of education. Our businesses are full of men and women biting and devouring one another to make a profit. And most of them support incredibly immoral causes with their profits. The news media is corrupt and agenda-driven. Our sports teams, we're the most wealthy and talented Every week it seems like there's a new headline about some abuse of a girlfriend or they're addicted or they're in jail. There's mass shootings. Most recently the the tragedy of uh, uh, the Pensacola shooting at the Navy base there. Just a couple of days ago, a 69-year-old man is randomly attacked and assaulted on Katy Trail up in Dallas. Just randomly 
randomly attacked or that horrible, horrible beating of 18-year-old Barnard College freshman Tessa Major stabbed to death by a 13-year-old. Abortions, hate crimes, drug and alcohol abuse, sexual debauchery of every kind, sex trafficking and trade, the degradation and reinvention of marriage in our culture, rampant abuse of children, of the elderly, and of the disabled. What would the prophets say if they were alive today? I think they would have something to say to us. And you know what? It would be nice if we could say... Yeah, that's the problem with all those people. Do you see corruption in your own heart too? Do you see the seeds of what Micah and the prophets were indicting the people about in your heart and in mine? Little dishonesties, little acts of selfishness, Putting yourself just a little bit in front of others in order to take advantage. We were, we were uh, last Sunday, we were up at Birchman. Uh, they do a wonderful Christmas program at Birchman Baptist Church in Fort Worth. We got there early, so we get good seats. We're standing in line. We're like six people back from the door. Got my, my family and, and some dear friends with us. The door's open. We're like six back. We're walking in. I'm trying to be a Christian and maintain my testimony on the way in, not run in front of everybody, right? By the time I got halfway into the church, there were like 90 people in front of me. Totally lost the family behind us, you know. This is a Christmas play, right? This is, and I was I was tempted to do what everybody else was doing, just like you would have. Little vanities. Thinking about your image or how you look or how you come across to people, how others view you. Little indulgences of food and drink, purchases, tolerating fits of anger, subtle heart bitternesses toward others, anxious fears, chronic worries, even though we all know the truth, sexual desires toward those who are not your spouse, prideful self-evaluations, ungodly comparisons with others, critical, harsh judgments, being defensive when anyone comes to bring a criticism toward you. You know, we don't like to think about it, but there's an underbelly to Christmas. You realize that, that Christmas can often bring the worst out of us? I think we're all old enough to know this, that Christmas is only perfect in Hallmark movies and greeting cards, right? We know that. Because the reality is this season often uh, brings to the surface things in our hearts that we really don't want to see and don't want to admit. You know why the holidays are so difficult? Because people are involved. And we are all corrupt to the core. Do you see how we can so easily profess God but deny Him by our deeds? You know, I think that Micah is a timely reminder that we are all corrupt and that reminds us that we all need a Savior. You know, if you think about it, um, these verses remind us that God loves justice and absolutely hates corruption of every and all kinds. He's that good and he's that holy.
and it's in the midst of that threat of judgment. I mean, we're, not, we're not disciplined by Assyria or Babylon. We understand that. But it's in that, that frame of mind that we likewise are corrupt, that we stand under the judgment of a holy God, that we need the Christmas message. We need that. And we miss the Christmas message when we don't start with this place that Micah starts, that, that we are lost and we are corrupt and we are under God's judgment. And unless he does something to act, it's hopeless for all of us, isn't it? So I'd like to see with you the good part of this book, okay? Let's get past the bad part. We, we needed to talk about that, but let's get to, to really the hope of this book, okay? And, and I want to call you to celebrate the Christmas King as the hope for humanity. It's with that backdrop that we get now into Micah 5.2. So you can see why this is such good news, right? In Micah's day, Judah is being threatened by God's judgment, by God's discipline. He is going to wipe out the nation except for a remnant. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. The nation will be destroyed. Their testimony, if that, will be destroyed. What hope is there for God's very people that have completely blown it? That is why we need Micah 5.2. Now look at chapter 5.2, okay? Look at this. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, that's a geographic reference. Ephrathah is the old word for Judah. Did you know there are actually two Bethlehems in Israel? Did you know that? There's a Bethlehem way, way, way far north, north of Galilee. Well, that's not where Jesus was born. Jesus was going to be born at the Bethlehem just five miles south of Jerusalem. You say, well, how are we going to know which one? Like, you know, where are we going to go? Which Bethlehem? Well, the prophet is specific, right? He doesn't give us GPS references or latitude and longitude coordinates, but he does tell us it's the Bethlehem in the southern kingdom. It's the Bethlehem in Ephrathah or Judah, the southern kingdom there. But look at this. Look back at the text. They're too little to be among the clans of Judah. Even though they're only five miles from Jerusalem, Bethlehem at this time is too small to make it on the tourist map of Israel. And yet, look at this, from you, as small as you are, as insignificant as you are, one will go forth from me to be a ruler in Israel. And, and this, is, this is really important. We see here in chapter 4 and in other places, this is one who comes to rule as the king, to rule as the leader. Remember, Israel, they're, they're looking across the land all their leaders are corrupt. Their priests are corrupt. Their political leaders are corrupt. Their army captains are corrupt. There's no one to lead them. And in the midst of that, God says, here's my plan. I'm going to dispatch my special king to lead and shepherd the people. And notice this. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And without getting into the, the textuality of this here, the language here is strong enough to make this conclusion. Micah is saying this to the people. This ruler will be supernatural. This is not like, you know, the, the latest batch from the kings of Judah. This leader whose goings forth are from the days of eternity is a supernaturally produced leader. This is God doing something miraculous to intervene on the part of the people. Therefore, look back at the text. Therefore, he will give them up. Israel, meaning he will be given up for judgment for a time until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Now, that's not a reference to Mary giving birth to Jesus. But the, the woman in labor getting ready to give birth is a personification of the nation of Israel who we know will eventually produce who? The Messiah. 
Okay, so that's a reference to the Messiah coming from Israel. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise. What is the special leader going to do? Verse 4, he will arise and shepherd his flock, and in the strength of the Lord, and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And I love this, verse 5, and this one will finally be our peace. And all this corruption, all this political uh, uh, backbiting, all of these foreigners that are threatening the security of the nation of Israel, all of that is undone and put to rest. And once again, the people of God will be at peace with God and they will have a shepherd leader who rules in righteousness and justice. That's why this is good news. Now, I want you to see three aspects of the Christmas King, okay? The first thing Mike is going to show us is that we want to celebrate the Christmas King because he brings a hope in future peace brought by the King's rule. He brings a hope for future peace brought by the King's rule. Look at chapter 4. You saw it in the video a moment ago, but what's going to happen in chapter 4 is Mike is going to paint this vision for how life is going to be. I mean, I mean just do that for a minute. If, if you had a magic wand at your disposal today and you could wave it and fix anything in society that you wanted to do, what would it look like? Okay? Micah's going to paint that picture for us. He's going to show us when the Messiah comes and doesn't wave his magical wand, he, he waves his Son of God wand, if we can call it that, and he makes all things right. What is it going to look like when he comes? Listen to this description. Chapter 4, verse 1. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief mountains. It will be raised up above the hills. The peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That's Jerusalem. And to the house of the God of Jacob. Why were they going there? That he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Look up for a second. Can you imagine a time when all the nations of the world say, we want to go there. Why do you want to go there? Because we want to learn the ways of the Lord so we can walk with him and follow him. You imagine a day when China says that? When North Korea says that? When the Middle East says that? When the African countries say that? When those little teeny tiny little uh, tribes in Papua New Guinea that David Gibson goes. And, can, you, can you imagine when the United States of America longs to say that? That's the vision of what's going to happen. They all come and they say, teach us the ways of the Lord. And in fact, look at verse 3. They're going to take all their weapons of war and what are they going to do? They're going to turn them into agricultural implements. They turn in their guns and tanks for John Deere tractors. Because they don't need them anymore. Because everyone is at peace around this Messiah. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Verse 4, each one of them will sit under his vine and under his tree. And what is 
Micah's call then. So Micah's call to the people today is, verse 5, he says, though today everybody's walking in the name of his own God, Micah's call to the people of Israel at that time is this, as for us, verse 5, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. And he goes on to describe the, the, the prosperity and the peace of this. In chapter 5, verse 4, we just read it. The the Messiah will shepherd His people on that day. And notice this rule is not just about Jews. It's about Gentiles only. This is a worldwide national gathering of people under the Messiah's rule. You say, great, when's this going to happen? After the Babylonians invade? No, no, no. You You guys understand that the prophets usually do not distinguish between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. Do you know that? Uh, They leave it up to us to figure that out. Zechariah actually talks specifically about the second coming of Christ and distinguish it. But most of the prophets don't do that. So what's going on here? Micah is announcing the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem, but then he's jumping ahead to the second coming and saying, that's when the nations will come under his rule. In the second coming of the Messiah, what we usually call his millennial reign is when all this happens. He comes in his first coming at Christmas to redeem all people, and he comes in his second coming to rule the nations and bring peace. And you know, when you're sitting by the fire one of the nights this week, and it's warm, and your favorite Christmas music is on, and you've got a moment where like you're like, oh, this is Christmas, right? And we long for rest We long for an anxiety-free life. We long for families that always get along and communicate. We long for having one heart and one mind in terms of how we treat one another. We long for peace on earth, don't we? And you know what? That's a good desire. We should want that. We should desire that. And the hope of the Christmas King is that one day that's coming. And so we don't lose hope. Don't be overwhelmed by the corruption and sorrow of this world. Don't give up hope when you see remaining corruption in your heart and when I see it in mine, because this day is coming. All of those who trust in the King will see it and experience it and enjoy it forever. So be encouraged. There's a day coming where all of this will come about. That's the first hope we want to see. Look at, look at the second aspect of the Messiah's reign and and his coming the this christmas king that is a hope for humanity the the second thing we want to do is to heed the heart call to walk in the king's will heed the heart call to walk in the king's will look at chapter six with me i know we got we got to keep moving here but look at look at chapter six chapter six starts with a court case and you remember in the video uh, the, the narrator described much of Micah comes to us as God coming, bringing a legal indictment, bringing a court case, as it were. And in chapter 6, verse 1, who does God call on as his witnesses against his people? The mountains, the hills. God calls the rest of creation to indict and to testify against his people. And, and God says in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, my people, what have I done to you? 
How have I wearied you? And then God says this, Indeed, I have brought you up from the land of Egypt. I have ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent you before Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And my people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered. God says, Have you forgotten how well I've treated you, how I've redeemed you, I've saved you, I've delivered you? And this is how you live? Now, the people respond. You've got to get this. The people are going to respond to God in chapter 6, verse 6. Here's how they respond. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I even present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, look up for a second. You've got to get this. Here's what the people are saying in response to God's accusation. What more can we do? Right? We've given you offerings. We've done the sacrifices. We keep the festivals. We go see our priest. We read the Torah. What more? Do you want 10,000 sacrifices? Do you want us to sacrifice our firstborn child to you to appease you like the pagan nations? What do you want, Lord? And this, guys, you've got to see this. This is what fallen people do when they realize they are under the judgment of God. What do they do? What more do I need to do? What other acts of religious service is, is going to be enough, right? Uh, what, what, how much money do I have to give the church? How many acts of charity? How much money to the Salvation Army do I have to give? You know, how long do I have to tolerate my in-laws? Right? They're, they're looking for anything to say, what is going to be enough? And that's, guys, that's what fallen human beings do, is they think, I'm just going to try better and, and do gooder in, in everything I can. And I can't help but think that this next week, there will probably be millions of people around the world who have not been to a worship service all year. They're going to show up for a Christmas service and it's going to make them feel better about their relationship with God. Maybe you even know some folks like that. And God is saying through this verse, that's not what I'm looking for. What is God looking for? Look at the next verse. You know this verse. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God is not looking for more external acts of service. He is looking for heart transformation. That's what He's looking for. True faith, a real relationship with the Lord, is about your heart being transformed. That's what Micah is saying. To do justice, to, to be a person of integrity and righteousness, honesty, to do justly, not taking advantage of people. And of course, in the backdrop of what was going on, God says, that's what I'm looking for. Be honest. Do what's right. Be people of integrity. Be honest. Do what is just. Look at what else he says. Love kindness. That, that's that word. We're going to see it a few more times. That's that word chesed. It means loyal, faithful, consistent mercy. He says, people, do you love to show consistent kindness to others? 
Do you consider others as more important than yourself? Are you loving neighbor as you love God? And then I love this. Walk humbly with your God. Walk, of course, is a metaphor for just how we live, right? To live, listen to this, in mindful, careful, humble submission to the will of God. That's what it means. Listen to a commentator. He says, Micah is warning against carelessly or presumptuously doing things your own way instead of being attentive to do God's will. Such a walk with God is humble. Listen to this. In that it puts a person's will in a secondary position and gives prudent attention to doing His will. That's what walking humbly with your God means. To live humbly, to acknowledge Him in all your ways, the Scripture says, to set Him always before you. The New Testament version goes like this. Make Christ first place in everything you do. Colossians chapter 1. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God is not interested in religious service or acts of external charity. He wants a heart that is becoming more like His. Now, listen closely. This is the point of Micah. Only the coming King can transform your heart into that. You need a Messiah to do that. You need a Savior to do that. Only the King can bring this heart transformation. Other prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel will expand on this, talking about the new covenant, the gospel in Old Testament close, right? Where people get a new heart and a new spirit and they have this internal renovation and transformation and all of a sudden they have a heart that longs to walk with God. And that's only... That only comes in the inauguration of the Messiah when he comes in Bethlehem. Can I just ask you, do you have a heart like that? Do you have a Christmas heart? That's what a Christmas heart really is. It's not being jolly. It's not giving gifts. Those are all good things. A Christmas heart is an internally transformed heart by the King of Kings who comes. One more thing. We want to hasten to thankfulness as you remember the king's character. Hasten to thankfulness as you remember the king's character. Micah's not done. As if that was good enough, Micah says, I've got one more. And we, we need to hasten to thank. You say, why hasten? That's an old word, Keith. I need another H. Okay? So uh, we can say hurry to thankfulness if you want something more modern. I like hasten. Hasten to thankfulness as you remember the king's character. All of this comes to a, an exclamation point as Micah concludes his prophecy with these words in chapter 7, verse 18. Why should we celebrate the Christmas king as the hope for humanity? Because he brings future peace brought in his rule. He calls us to live in this walk according to the king's will, and he calls us to thankfulness as we remember the king's character. Look at chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. 
He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will be, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. He starts off, look at this. He says, who is a God like you? And that, you know what that is? It's interesting. At the very beginning of the book of Micah, Micah tells us, hi, I'm Micah. And at the very end, we get this phrase, who is a God like you? And those are the bookends of the book because the name Micah means who is like the Lord. You see that? Do you know why God picked a country boy to be his prophet to bring this message? Because his name was the perfect name to bring the message. So he pulls this guy out of the country, puts him in the prophet's role. Who is like the Lord? And God, and God says, that's the point of this book. Who is like this God? Why is he so amazing? Why is there none like him? And the rest of the passage answers that. Why is there none like this God? Look back at verse 18. Because he's a pardoning God, right? He pardons our iniquities. He passes over our rebellious acts. He treads iniquities underfoot. He casts all sins into the sea. There is no God like that that extends pardoning and mercy and passes over our rebellion and casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Look at verse 19. It says there, He will again have compassion on us. It's interesting. Picture this. Let's say that you're playing baseball with your kid and you throw a ball and it, you know, you're not as, as good as you were back in college, back in high school, and it strays off, goes through the neighbor's window, right? And you go to the door, I'm sorry, I'm playing, playing ball with my kid, broke your window, I'll pay for it. Oh, it's okay, neighbor, you know, we've been friends for years, okay. You go back, 10 minutes later, another one goes to another window, same neighbor, same house, I'm sorry, neighbor, I'm playing ball with the kid again, you know, the shoulder kind of, you know, a little sore today, and a third window, a fourth window, a fifth window, until you've blown out every window in this poor guy's house. And it's pecan plantation, so he's got like, you know, 43 windows, okay? Um, you know what this word compassion means? Every time you knock on the door of God's residence and say, I blew it again, he greets you with grace and mercy. That's what it means. It's repetitive compassion. Look at this. Psalm 7:11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. But look at this text. God is rightly and justly angry, but verse 18 says what? He does not retain his anger forever. For those who turn to him in repentant faith, listen, his anger has an expiration date. In the Messiah, His righteous anger toward you and me comes to an end. Verse 18, He delights in unchanging love. I love that word unchanging love. It means faithful grace and loyal mercy. See, God isn't just willing to pardon you. He delights to pardon you. He is pleased to pardon you. He can't wait to pardon you again. Why? Because He wants you to sin more? No, no, no. Because He loves extending mercy that much. He's unchanging in His love. Not just once in a while or when He's in the mood. He's always faithful to give you grace and mercy. Verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob. That word truth probably is better translated faithfulness. You will be faithful to Jacob and offer unchanging love to Abraham. You say, why Jacob and Abraham? Because they were the ones who were the recipients of what? 
The Abrahamic covenant. You say, what's the Abrahamic covenant? Well, here's all you need to know about the covenant. It was what was, it, it was the promise of God that reminded the people that He would bless all the families of the earth through the Messiah who would come through the line of Abraham. And God is saying, even though His people have rebelled, even though you and I have rebelled, God has not forgotten His promise. He will remember His covenant. He will send the Messiah. And He will offer the forgiveness and restoration that we all need. And the coming King that Micah announces, the Messiah's arrival, listen, is not just the deliverance from Assyria or Babylon, but these verses tell us it's ultimately a deliverance from sin. Listen. The Messiah is not primarily on a political mission, but a rescue mission to draw hearts back to the Lord. So why should we celebrate the Christmas King? Micah's message, even his name reveals the point. There is no one like this God, is there? There's no one we know like this. Who is like the Lord in the midst of corruption and rebellion and fallenness, who pardons iniquity, who passes over rebellion, who ceases from his anger, who delights in unchanging love? Who, who is like that? Who is like the Lord who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion? Who can we look to who is like the Lord who has not dealt with us according to our iniquities or rewarded us according to His sins, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us, even as a father has compassion on his children so far, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Who is like the Lord? who loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why Christmas is worth celebrating. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the reminder of the Gospel as Micah brings, us, brings it to us in his way. Lord, as we meditate on what we learn and as we continue to worship you and to celebrate this holiday. Remind us of the depth of our corruption and of the glory of grace. We say with the prophet, who is like you? There is none like you. We're grateful in Christ's name.